Hi, this is Mary H.K. Choi, and you're listening to Hey Cool Job, a podcast about jobs. We're so happy to be back, and we're taping at the newsstand at Rock Center. Our guest today is artist and best-selling author Adam J. Kurtz, who you might know from the intranets or his stationery line as Adam J.K. His books, which aren't self-help but maybe self-help adjacent, have been translated to over 15 languages, and despite once underwriting his entire life by selling a t-shirt design that went viral on Tumblr, he is humble, generous, truthful, and a rare bright spot in the cesspool hellfest of social media. He's worked at BuzzFeed, the ad agency Barton F. Graff. He's originally from Toronto, Canada, and now lives in New York with his husband, who is wonderful and a writer and journalist. Hi, Adam. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How is the vibe today? The vibe? Uh, well, it's month six of <laughs> COVID-19. Um, if you're listening to this in the future, um, so COVID-19 was a sort of worldwide pandemic that was entirely um, preventable. And the United States um, leaders in power allowed it to get really bad um, because of capitalism. So that's what was and that's where we're at right now. It's true. Late stage capitalism. Wow. What a scourge. Um, are you still writing like the words healthy and safe in your emails or like in these times? So I'm doing that like New York media, like post irony where I say like in these uncertain times, but I capitalize every word. And then it's like short, it's shorthand for like, I mean it, but if you think this is uncool, then don't worry. I know it's uncool as well. Right. Covering all the bases. That sounds really, um, New York, but also very you, very us. Um, (laughs) okay. So I don't want to dwell on COVID life. (laughs) No, we did it. That's I, I honestly like get it out of the way and then pretend it's not happening. I will say one thing only because I think that this is kind of important and everything else is garbage. No, just this one thing, which is I'm, I'm super curious about how any thoughts that you had around like ambition or productivity have changed in this time. You know, I think... I don't know about ambition and productivity, but I've been doing a lot of questioning about my value and what I offer to the world. And like, I know it's your job to draw this out of me because you are like the ultimate like therapist ghost whisperer, but jokes on you because I make everyone my therapist. (laughs) And when we were in, in especially like March, April, May, when we were talking about essential workers as, as sort of like the backbone of society, I was like, okay, I know that grocery store is essential. I know that nurses and doctors are essential. What is a novelty stationary man who was fired from BuzzFeed? What, what is that in like the scheme of essential things? And so I really had to question like, what is my value? What am I contributing? Like, does this matter? And I don't remember what I decided. I think (laughs) I was just like... I was just like, you know what, let's just uh, uh, put this with the other things that we don't want to think about too hard. Well, you know what, we are going to suss that out today. Guess what? Joke's on all Surprise. of us. Yeah, totally. Okay, just to kick off, you are definitely one of those like multi-hyphenates in terms of your work and your praxis. But what incites more complicated feelings in you, being called an influencer or a creative? Honestly, I've reached the stage of my career where you can call me whatever you want as long as the check cash is. <laughs> like I, I was on a panel, I was on an influencer panel at an agency attend and it was attended by like their clients who were like American Express and Apple. And they were like, How does everyone feel about influencer? And I looked everyone straight in the eyes and I was like, I don't care, pay me. Like I just don't, I just don't care. 
sure, I'm an influencer. I mean, I what are the metrics anymore? Like, is it number of followers? Is it like how many brand deals you've already done? Is it like an affinity for fit tummy tea? Like I tick all three boxes. <laughs> and waist training. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, I kind of agree with that. I do have a question and I've been sort of thinking about this lately, which is that like within that sort of influencer scope, there is kind of no such thing as selling out. However, I know you and you have a conscience and I know that as far as like the sort of wellness industrial complex and the way that you are so gentle and tender around and transparent around mental health, isn't there kind of a line somewhere along that where, where you're like, okay, like commodifying this part too much is gross. Yes. A hundred percent. Um, and I actually, I just got off a call with my new talent management company where we like talked about this in Ew. terms of like what they should and shouldn't pitch me for. Um, and I definitely, I definitely have a lot of feelings around it. I mean, you mentioned in the intro, I, I came from an advertising background first and I came from traditional graphic design, which is about product and like commodifying the art. You know what I mean? I don't come from a fine art background. So I'm always, I've been used to like product. What's the product? What's the message? What are we selling? And my perspective is as long as the advertorial content is transparent, as long as we're not pretending, then it's fine. Um, and as long as like a brand product service, whatever isn't in conflict with my personal values, also fine. So I will do an ad for a credit card company. Um, but I was sober for five years and I turned down good money from a liquor brand. Cause I was just like, I don't drink, so I'm not going to do this. And now I drink again. So, you know, smart enough, feel free to get back to me. <laughs> so, okay. I'm promoting a new book. You're promoting a new book. I'm always promoting some fucking... Wait, you are also always... Like, where do you find the time to just write New York Times bestselling novels? Every six months, you're like, here's another one. You know what I love? The way I hear that, the story I'm telling myself, is you think that I have, have no interior life <laughs> and that I'm personally bankrupt. It's so funny what your brain will do because I'm like, oh, you know, like, I'm always, like, doing something, no, 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 but... Yeah, I mean, it's hard and I work hard and I know you work hard too and it's expensive to do that, but it's also okay. Um, you got a 2021 planner slash journal called Unsolicited Advice available for pre-order now, 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 now. And just as a background, you're, you're an artist, illustrator, and writer and you started making this planner on Kickstarter in 2011, right? Um, actually, before Kickstarter... I, this is like the, my true origin story yes. is that I worked at, I worked at the university of Maryland, Baltimore County photo student photocopy center. And that's like, where you I went was to the school. Guy, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's where I went to school. And I was the guy who would like print out your homework for you for like seven cents a page. And I was extremely broke at that time, but I really, you know, I get really into the holidays and gifting. And I had this moment of like, what if I just make a present for my friends? And so after hours I printed this little like agenda. And it was like, you know, somewhere between like a zine that, and I was making zines at the time. And then like the slingshot planner, which if anyone here is up the punks, you kind of know what I'm talking about. And I was like, what if I, you know, do my little thing. And so I made some and I had like 10 extra and I posted a picture on Tumblr 
and strangers were like, I'll, I'll PayPal you $8 for that. And so I kept going back, staying late at work. And I ended up selling like 200 of these things. Wow. That's and amazing. Then the ne- it was, I mean, I was 21. I had no aspirations to like be a stationary brand or have a book deal or anything. Um, and then the next, by the next year I had moved to New York and my roommate worked at Kickstarter. So he was like, you should try this new website. And, and I did. And so I did pre-orders for a couple of years. And then three years ago, I switched to just like regular sale where I just pay for the printing and they sit in boxes and then you just buy them. And I'm like a store now. Well, okay. I kind of want to talk about what it is because I think it sort of perfectly encapsulates not only kind of like what you do, but like why I personally think you're kind of good for morale. Um, I mean, it is, it's a dated weekly planner and agenda. It's very, if you're a planner person or a stationary person, you know exactly what we're talking about here. Um, But my take on that is a little bit less of the like productivity hacking hour by hour, um, plan your life and meetings version and it's it's like halfway to an introspective journal slash end of the day winding down documenting what happened and there's these sort of like existential reminders and nagging and encouragement and so it's like a little bit goofy dad joke and a little bit like horoscopy tarot vibe where it's like very fortune cookie i think my whole thing is very fortune cookie where it's like it might be nonsense or if you're in the right mindset and it's like worded the right way it means everything to you and you carry it in your pocket for a decade and you let it lead your life. It's, it's absolutely like whatever you need it to be. Right. It's sort of like song lyrics that, you know, and then just hit so different depending on where you're at emotionally. Yes. I always think about my work like a pop song. Like it's so light and fluffy and depending on your mood, you're either like, this is like, you know, can't be tween nonsense or you're like, this song saved my life. I always think that your work is like so kind though so like i bought a planner (laughs) i needed it for morale and like the 10 pages of stickers really sold me but also like (laughs) the reason why i bought it isn't just to be like i bought your planner but i got into bullet journaling and it made me fucking crazy like it just felt Mm. so prescriptive and didactic and i could sort of like hold it up almost as like an aspiration that i had for the day that i like failed on so many levels (laughs) and so like i feel like your planner kind of is a a little bit of a lighter touch, which I think we could all sort of use at this point. Um, Did you make one for 2020? I did. I did do a 2020 planner and 2020 was the year that this really, this project really leveled up where I finally got to the place where I was like, you know what? I'm going to use a printer like the big guys. I'm going to pre pre make thousands of them. I'm, you know, it's like, it's, you could find it in a store. I, I opened the box and it's, it's nicer than some of the, the products I've made with major publishers. Like the first thing I said was like, fuck a publisher. Like I felt like I had arrived and I sold 5,000 2020 planners in six weeks last year. And so I see the tweets that are like, why the fuck did I buy a planner? And I feel them so deeply. <laughs> well, actually, you know, that was my question. Like, cause I look at it and like, I come from a a print publishing background as well. And so I see these different paper stocks. I see these sticker inserts and I'm like, holy shit, what a pain in the ass. Like even (laughs) like, even like sampling some of these pages, like must be so annoying. It looks expensive to make. 
And now knowing that you did self-publish, like, is it more profitable to self-publish something like this? Yes and no. Okay. When I say yes, it's it's 90% yes. 10% is the magic no that happens with a major publisher where that hyper accessibility and major publishers, I mean, you're familiar with this. Major publishers will sell your book in as many languages and as many foreign rights deals as they can. And so if you are super, super lucky, your major publisher book can hit hard. Um, but the majority of people don't sell out their advance or like the advance for my first book was $15,000. And this like, is like Penguin. This is at a major, right? Yeah. Penguin Random House gave me $15,000 for my first book. And for a first, I mean, I was 24. Like it's a, jur- a fill-in journal. It was not a novel. Um, this is sort of a sidebar because I think there was that there was that hashtag recently for people to share what their advances were in publishing. And I felt like it did a disservice because it's such there's such a broad range of types of books and types of advances and types of structures. And the conversation wasn't nuanced enough to be specifically helpful. Twitter, not nuanced, weird. Well, Twitter loves to masquerade itself as like this great equalizer and like we're sharing information and we're, we're getting real and we're getting into it. And people build a personal brand off of these long Twitter threads, but there's so much missing and, I was like itching to contribute. I was itching to share my story about working with major publishers. And I just knew that I couldn't do it. Like I would need more than 10 tweets in a thread. I need like an essay. Yeah, I definitely do agree. Like it was one of those things where I'm just like, I would watch the shit out of a panel on this, especially if it was actually populated and representative of like, you know, people. But yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree. But I mean, so yeah, like Penguin publishes your other books and something like the international runway hit 2017's things are what you make of them. Um, <laughs> but I do think it's interesting that you have both sides of that knowledge. And I am curious, like, do you have any advice for anyone who's just like, I'm going to self publish? I do. Well, it's, it's always hard for me to give like a hundred percent, like here's the advice, take it. Right. <laughs> I think it, it, it depends. I think it does depend on the nature of what you are publishing. I've never written or published a novel. I've never written or published anything long form at all. So I can't speak to that. But in terms of the realm of gift books, stationery, like that's really my pocket. Um, I think that most of the time, those kinds of titles are not massive hits. You know, it's most of the time you don't sell out your events. And so if you're, if you're, if you know, you're only going to sell, I shouldn't say only because 20-year-old me would be thrilled to sell 50 zines. But if you are going to sell in the lifetime of your creation 1,000 copies, you will make more self-publishing. Because my royalty for a book sold is between $0.90 and $1.15. But when I self-publish a book, I I set the margins on that. And so 200 planners sold might equal my lifetime royalties on a different book. And it's just... There's so much that's up in the air and there's so much that's murky about it that it's really hard to say. But the thing about the major publisher is that when it's out there in the world, it's like a lottery ticket. Because one day, if Taylor Swift buys my journal at Michael's and Instagrams it, and then I wake up the next morning and it like blows it, like that can happen. And it does happen to books occasionally, years after being published, where a fluke just sort of like makes something blow up. And there, one quick example, and then I'll, I'll sort of end this. 
There is another journal on my same imprint at Penguin that's called it's called Burn After Writing or something. And it's essentially like it's a fill-in interactive journal, not dissimilar from mine. And it was published in 2013 and then somehow became a TikTok trend amongst 13-year-olds where like you post your copy of it and you flip the pages along with like one particular song. And it has gone on to sell like over a hundred thousand copies from a TikTok trend, which like who could predict that seven years later? So there is magic in accessibility. Um, but I think for the vast majority of like the, the type of projects I work on, it's like, just, just self-publish. Why wouldn't you? Why not? Just do it. I find it really interesting that you're talking about accessibility because like, you know, a lot of like internet people, like hashtag Tumblr people or whatever, like they knew you from that um, Joy Division t-shirt, like what, I don't know what this is, but I saw it on Tumblr, like, which is basically this sort of like um, tilted waveform of like a neutron star, no, a pulsar. And, you know, that's like their album cover. And it's the imagery is so iconic, but obviously you played on the fact that like so many people can like signal their affinity for something without ever knowing what it is, especially on Tumblr. And I find it really interesting because that thing is so cult followed that it's still available for order on your website now all these years later like the secondary market on that could have been like huge it could have been one of those like weird grailed things but you still make it accessible and I was wondering why that was and what that says about the type of career you want honestly it is like only by fluke that I even know what grailed is <laughs> I understand that what what we're doing now is we're extending an olive branch to like your core fuckboy audience and i just want to say <laughs> to all the fuckboys listening um yes this is this is what i sound like i see you and i you know i you hear well, I don't them hear you. Yeah. i don't i don't, well, you know I don't what? even they're know they're not them. fuckboys anymore i'm so old that they're more like fuckmen but regardless the fuckmen in my see, fuck men i can get behind <laughs> that that I'm on board for. That's actually like branding. My whole deal. Yeah, totally. Uh, no, but I think like y- if you were like the cool guy asshole, which you could easily sound like if I were to tr- like trot you off into the world and just level the one description of like, oh, he his t-shirt went viral, whatever. Like you could sort of like you know g- go out to lunch on that one tidbit forever, especially if it got rarer and rarer, especially as it got sort of more niche. But you yeah. still make it available, like, at the same original, pretty much, MSRP. And I, I kind of like that. I like that there really is... People talk about the internet being so egalitarian, but that's obviously not true. Like, the more niche, the more insider you are, the more, like, cachet you can have. But you genuinely sort of level that. Yeah. I think I just, like, don't care about <laughs> that. No, I really, like, I just, I just don't care about that. And you're right. I think that presentation is, like... Like we could have, we could have presented this whole story differently. The fact that I made a t-shirt about the, the nature of appropriation in pop culture and Peter Savo lifted that art and repurposed it. And it's been repurposed since. And like Peter bought 12 of those shirts for his personal archive and like is, was photographed holding my t-shirt in the Washington post and called it profoundly clever in the guardian. Like the joy, this iconic designer who's like a, you know, an inspiration to so many in, in my industry loves this t-shirt and like speaks about it repeatedly. Um, yeah, I mean, I could position, I could position 
a lot of my personal history behind that moment. But I would rather that like an 18 year old can still get it for $30 than have it be some sort of like weirdo old school Adam JK merch that like you either got it or you did. I I just, I like that. There just are so many levels because like perfect example, like do you sometimes feel like your work because it is so easily biteable and so easily copyable that people sometimes like undervalue the sort of elegance and simplicity and like truthfulness of the original concept. Like people could look at your stuff and be like, I don't get it. What is, what is he like an Etsy page? I mean, I think if I take a a step backwards and just like take stock of my career thus far and like what maybe my idea of its public perception is, is like, yeah, people undervalue my work and write me off constantly. And I'm not really great at packaging all my various career successes. Like there's actually so much shit about my trajectory that is like kind of surprising and incredible. Like a lot of good things have happened for me as a product, as a direct result of my hard work that are, I I guess I'm trying to say that like, yeah, I've done a lot of good shit that has like, um, been good. I don't know what I'm saying. I guess what I'm trying to say is yes, people undervalue my work, but then also to your point, like, I just don't care because it, it, that doesn't stop me from making it. Mm. No, I actually really like that about you. And we're going to talk about that. Um, so I know stores carry your stuff. Your own online store is really robust. Like I was super impressed by like all the like Shopify pop-ups. And I was like, oh yeah, I do want pencils, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I only just did that like a month ago. But no, no, that stuff works. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like so, it makes me feel like, feel like I'm buying like really nice cosmetics or something. I'm just like, oh my God, this is so robust. And your Amazon stuff is like super organized and my mine is trash. And so I noticed these things. Things. And I know you you also have like wholesale accounts with stores and gift stores and things like that. That fills me with such anxiety. And I just wanted to know, like, are you good with numbers? Who does your bookkeeping? Are your taxes the scariest shit ever? Like, how do you keep track of SKUs? Like, you know, you've got everything from like a really cute puffy sticker and it's like $4. And knowing what I know about you, I'm sure you went through so many samples to get that one and I know you print on like really nice cotton blanks and it's, it's like well cut and that t-shirt's like around $30 and like, yeah, I have a panic attack thinking about your back end and like, is there something about you that's good at it? Did you have to get better at it? What type of person would love this? What does that look like when you close your eyes at night? Like I can't. There's just, there's been a lot of learning by doing. And I think that you know, that's, that's always the case, right? Like nobody knows anything until they've done it and fucked it up and then keep going. And that's absolutely like my entire ethos. That's the story of my come up. I've been at this for years. Like I was 17 years old selling, selling, um, one inch button, you know, badge buttons that I would hand make. And I was selling them in live journal communities. Like I've just always been making things and distributing things. And it's been a slow process. I didn't have a logo until two years ago and it's just my name handwritten, but you know, now it's like a registered trademark and I didn't have SKUs until the beginning of last year. I didn't have registered UPC codes. I did have ISBN numbers because I figured that like, there's so many things I just didn't do until the very last second when I had to do it. You know, I didn't have, I didn't have even solidified retail packaging until Urban Outfitters was like, we want, we want 3,000 pins. 
And I was like, oh, I can't put them on the cards myself in my living room. I need to start finding out if the manufacturers will do my packaging for me. And so it's like, until I'm hit with a wall, I won't try to like climb over it. But then I will. And I, I had a meltdown last year because Madewell ordered um, 3,000 of my tarot deck, but had like very specific packaging requirements for like uh, an oversized plastic bag around shrink wrap with a safety warning and all this stuff. And you think you can't do it. And then you, you know, tweet like five things about it, then delete all your tweets and then you do it. <laughs> I love that. Um, do you have employees? I do not have a single employee. I don't. Um, I, th- I was going to hire someone this year. I actually wrote out the job description and I, I actually, I kind of, I had lunch with someone and I think we both knew it was an informal job interview and I was kind of ready to hire her and then COVID hit. And I was like, Oh, f- like, thank God I'm not responsible for someone's livelihood and health insurance. Cause that would have been, I know what I'm like. And despite having so much financially fall through this year, I, I would have like paid out of pocket to like keep someone employed because I'm not gonna, I just can't fuck someone over. Um, unless it's myself, which in which case, you know, fuck me. I don't care. Right, right. Um, Forever. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's just me. Um, but I do, I have a remote fulfillment center that I contract out to, and I do work with an independent small business that does small scale wholesale to like boutiques or independent retailers. Um, I mean, even independent retail, like some of the, like SF MoMA carries all my stuff through that guy. So I'm out there. Um, but the only, the only times I'm arranging it myself is like big retail. Like I'm currently, <laughs> currently working through a Nordstrom order for Christmas, which is actually incredible. I probably shouldn't say it, but whatever. Nordstrom's not listening to this podcast. How um, dare it was, you? <laughs> it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be like a hundred keychains. And so I was like, okay, why are we having phone calls about a hundred keychains? I'm going to pass you off to this guy who does the small stuff. And then they came back and it's like, it's like thousands and thousands of units. And he had to pass it back to me and I'm jumping through hoops to like hit the deadlines and like do their very specific labeling system. But like, we're going to do it. And I'm going to be in all the Nordstrom stores with my like little keychain that says like, you know, don't kill yourself. Feel, feel better. I love that's that. not what it says, but that's what it means. No. And like, I love that. Like, I love the transparency of that where you're like, yeah, you know, these very, very glossy things with very official packaging and point of purchase displays at these high end, you know, like big box stores. It's, it's still you being like, motherfucker. <laughs> like, yeah. How shall I do this? Okay. So break this down for me. Um, if you're a pop star, if, I mean, you're a pop star. So, so like oh streaming on Spotify is like trash, nothing money. It's just like belly button lint. And then like touring is like big money and then merch is big money and like different weird deals that you get with like subpar denim brands, whatever. Like all of these things, there's like medium sized money. Like break down your different revenue streams for me between like speaking engagements, your actual merch, your book deals from like Penguin, like. And also, like, are you, like, a brand ambassador for Adobe? Like, I associate you with, like, those Chanel girls, like Zoe Kravitz, for some example, where it's, like, they're always at the Chanel luncheons. Like, obviously, like, you you have, like, things where, like, either you're the face of them, or I don't know, but, like, you make, like, PDF resources for them, and you feel like an ambassador. Like, what, what are the different sort of revenue, revenue streams and, yeah, like... 
how how does this all sort of come together? I feel like I'm on this pod at the right time because as recently as last year, I was I was just wasn't as comfortable speaking about money and finances. And I had a really big wake-up call where I had a major fuck up, and it was the result of not having these frank conversations with even my friends. Cause I, I grew up in a home where we didn't talk about money and we didn't really have any. And what happened was had I just been more open with my friends, they could have, they would have identified red flags and helped me. And I would have saved a lot of money over the last couple of years. So I'm ready to be transparent. Um, my, my brand and my online shop is a really big part of my income. Um, I actually do pretty well considering that my average price point is $15. Um, I think it is that thing, what we were talking about with the t-shirt where if I just position myself differently and like increase the pricing and really double down on like, it's an artist multiple, I could absolutely make even more money, but I like the accessibility and the ease of it all. Um, I do now I do more brand work. Um, it's funny that you called me an Adobe ambassador because I, I literally am, and I have a year long contract and I don't think a single person has noticed. Um, <laughs> uh, no, really. And I was, I was so proud. I was like, wow, people are going to see this. They're going to take me seriously. Um, but that is like being the Chanel ambassador for your field. Like who doesn't fuck with Adobe? Like, it's like, it's we like, all fucking use them every day. I've been using Adobe products for at least a decade. That's there. I mean, some people have issues with them, which I understand uh, <laughs> both sides. <laughs> I pitched it to them and negotiated a very fucking cool thing with a lot of moving parts. And, you know, the, the current COVID situation changed a lot. And part of me at first was like, oh, my bruised ego. Like, I wanted the PR of this. Like, this is actually a really big deal for someone like me. And then I kind of stopped and I was like, Actually, it's kind of awesome that I can continue to just be like a little nobody, but then cash the check. Um, and I'll say that like that that campaign is kind of the only thing that didn't fall through for me this year. So it's it's kind of sustaining me um, at this time because my speaking engagements, you know, all canceled or switched to online at greatly reduced rates. Hugely and, reduced. I mean, that's something yeah. that I am encountering in just a lot of my friends, and like. I get it. Speaking is a big, there's a lot of money there. I don't think people realize. Um, so for people who do a lot of it, it's a huge loss this year. Um, and I don't do as much as, as other people do, but, but yeah, I think that's a bigger piece of the puzzle than probably people on the outside realize. No, for sure. And also like <sighs> speaking engagements are interesting because anytime you have to travel, it's so easy to build in other things once you're on the ground in that place. And so, yeah, yeah, it is like a very big sort of part. It's like, it's, it's a, it's a really, really sizable sort of brick in the wall, so to speak. And so when you talk about like how COVID had, has devastated your livelihood, like, I really feel that like, how, how brutal was it? And at what point were you like, holy shit, like, I am really getting an idea for like how big this is. And did you panic? Like, how did you do it? I mean, I panicked a little bit, not because I don't have savings. Like, I knew objectively we were okay. We, you know, we could afford to live. 
I didn't have to like worry about paying the rent on my studio. Like we were okay. My concern was that I, I thought that I was on an upward trajectory and instead I'm not. And that impacts my ability to secure a mortgage. And my dream was to purchase a home uh, at the end of this year because I'm just so desperate for that security. And so honestly, like depending on how things shake out, like I probably, as I mean, as a, as a freelancer, it's already, already hard to get a mortgage and they look at your tax returns and your profit and loss statements up until that point. And because now it's going to be very clear that actually things aren't as stable for me as I wanted to present them as it may actually impact my ability to, to get a more, it's like, I'm worried about stuff like that. Um, I'm not worried about, you know, the things that really matter, like buying groceries. Like I can still buy groceries. I don't, it's so hard to talk about money. Because it is hard to talk about money, but I'm fine. I think it's I'm fine. like, impor- I'm just fine. Like, I think it's important to talk about it because I have the same thing where I have a lot of guilt because what I'm the most salty and butthurt about is that I too wanted to buy a house sometime soon. Like I have been working a really long time and I've been working for very, very, very little money for a long time. And like, I mean, this was like the first, the last, like last year and like this year was supposed to be the years where I was like, oh my God, I finally sort of made it. Like my star is mm. actually finally sort of rising. And so I'm, I'm not like both things can be true, which is that like needing to buy groceries is terrible and worse for sure. But, you know, for me, it's been important for me to be pretty frank about the fact that like I have moments of being bummed out. And I think those moments are kind of valid as well, if for no other reason, so that I can move through it without any sense of like entitlement or bitterness and just get the fuck over myself. But like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it is, it is, I can be bummed for you that, you know, that this year was looking a certain way at the top and, and now, yeah, it's like completely disrupted. Well, let me just be frank. Like I just didn't even have money until like three years ago. You know what I mean? Like the whole thing is so new that I didn't even have an, a, a dream of home ownership. And you said house. Keep in mind, I did not say the word house. I said home. And home takes a lot of shapes. Like I'm still thinking very, you know, it's we're still talking small scale here. Um, I have very modest tastes, um, hyper-realistic person. But it's it's more that, you know, home ownership seemed like this totally inaccessible thing. And the more I learned about it, the more I was like, oh, well, it's not like I I don't have the money up front. I'm going to pay it for 30 years. It's just that in order to even get the bank to allow you the opportunity to pay it for 30 years, you need to have something on paper. And so if I had a salary position, it wouldn't be a question. Even if I were to lose that job six months later, it's like once you're in, you're in. For anyone listening who's like, fuck this zine boy for like being mad that he said it. Like it's, I hear myself saying it and I'm like, this sounds like rich people problems. Like, what are you talking about? Although I'm sure if someone listening is actually rich, you're like laughing at me because you're like, Oh honey, (laughs) you thought that was rich. You and I have talked about this. Like I well, we hung out in Canada where we were both there. I think either I was on hometown. Yeah. I was on tour and you had an event, but then you were also hanging out with your brother and we ate literal poutine And we kind of talked about how it was the first year that we felt safe, monetarily speaking, and maybe like even like secure in a way that we could quietly, again, just the two of us at a bar, be proud of ourselves. And then we took turns being proud of each other. And there was so much shame and discomfort around that. And so I, 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 I identify with that 
a lot. And I do think that for me personally, there is this narrative that is very seductive, which is that like, you know, how much credibility can I have as an artist if, you know, I'm also like paid out the ass or like wealthy or like successful, you know, just like all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not projecting this narrative on you. I'm just identifying with some of the discomfort around talking about success because it also feels inauspicious. I feel like there's like, you know, a fate troll that's going to be like, Mwaha, you thought like, how dare you speak on this? I'm going to take it all away. Yeah. Well, I think as a creative person, and I hesitate to use the word artist in this context, because we're not talking about like a fine art route, but as a creative person, as someone who, who makes something or, or has creative, a tangible creative output, like there's not really a roadmap to, to financial success. Like you're supposed to find your, or quote, supposed to find your success in other things. Like the, you know, wow, you birthed this book that you wanted to make or, or you communicated your thing your way and it was received by your peers. Um, and so, yeah, as soon as you start to also like reap financial reward, um, that's, that feels disproportionate to the nature of what you do. There is this weird guilt and, and shame and, you know, you, your peers, maybe you, you respect the work of your peer more than your own. And you're like, well, that person is a genius cartoonist. They deserve this more than I do, et cetera. But I also have a sense of like, there is a short window where my thing is relevant. And I think that I am coming up on the end of that window where this is my time to sort of get what I can and, and try to very carefully use that money to, to find stability. Like I'm obsessed, basically I'm obsessed with buying a home because I, it feels very now or never. And I'd love to know that like, okay, I graduated from zines to keychains to books. I bought a house. And then now I'm, I'm back to like 50 or 60 K a year doing like in-house presentation deck design, which is what I did before this. And that would be okay. That would be okay. I find that surrender and serenity really admirable, but I do question the scarcity mentality around that and the sort of nature of feeling as though what it is that you do is this like finite thing and that when um, you can no longer curry favor with various tastemakers, hashtag that something, some like door will close. Like I understand that. And actually like I kind of get it because it's like, you know, there's been moments of this like punctuated equilibrium, evolutionarily speaking, in both our careers. Like you distinctly had a moment after you moved to New York where you were kind of cudgeling together like WordPress things where you were replaced by quote WordPress plugins. And so oh there's- Oh my God, I was, yeah, yeah, that is the true story of how I lost that job. But like, that's a, tra- <laughs> that's a trauma. And I kind of hear some of that baggage being applied to what, what it is that you think you're doing now. And I ju- I'm just, as a friend- holding up a mirror to another friend um, just to invite some interrogation around that. So um, I would, so going back to your childhood, no, just going back to your origins, like um, does your family fully understand, especially at this point, what you do? No, I don't know. <laughs> yes and no. I, I'm not particularly close with my family. Okay. Um, I, you know, and I, I appreciate that you didn't volunteer this information first, but like, so I grew up Orthodox Jewish. My family is still very religious and I'm a little bit, I, I only recently realized that this word applies to my situation, that it felt like a label that couldn't be me, but essentially I'm like a little bit estranged and 
they understand now that like what I do is able to financially support me. And like, my mom was very, very excited when I did dishes for Fish's Eddie. Like when I did a collection with Fish's Eddie, that was like her language. She got it. Um, but like last time I was in my child or not my childhood home, but last time I was in their house, like I saw a copy of my book that I had sent her when it came out. And I like, I just opened it and it was like, I was the first person to crack right, that spine. You can hear it. You can and, like, smell the, it. The PR letter, like the, the letter with the penguin stationery was like in there that was like, we're proud to present. And, you know, it was like, it had not been touched. And I was like, okay, that's fine. It's not really for you. Um, they kind of get it. Sometimes my mom is like a little too hyperbolic about it now. And I, I sort of feel like she's pre-eulogizing me. In this weird Say way, more, because I love everything that's going on around that. As soon as I said that, I was like, fuck it. If she ever heard this podcast, which who knows? Who knows? Because um, she, she's like me. She likes to dig a little bit and then get hurt. You know, when you're like, you're digging until something hurts and then you're like, I knew it. Yeah. It's like self-soothe until it's so self-harm and you're like, exactly. <laughs> like I won, I think. Yeah. I, I just think because I'm far, um, and especially now that I'm moving, even I'm moving further away, there's a little bit of a sense of like, well, I could die anytime. And so every conversation could be the last one. Mm. And I guess that's actually just sort of like the next, like that's the evolved form of my neuroses as well. So I see, it's like, I got a watered down version of that. Like, luckily my dad is sprinkled in to like dilute that level of it. But yeah, sometimes she's just like, you know, you're so successful and, and people love what you have to say so much. And you're so empathetic and like, this is wonderful. And I'm so proud of you. And I'm just like, you know, save it for, you know, the pulpit with my coffin nearby or whatever. Also, it feels like uh, I have this sometimes too, where it's very like, oh man, please show, don't tell. Like, just, just, <laughs> just approve of me in a way that feels like the interlocking of machinery just once and not like, give me this speech about how much you quote admire me. <laughs> like, Yeah. I mean, I had that with my, my husband, my husband, like early in our relationship where he was like, you don't have to say you love me. Like, you know, I can feel it. Like, so I get it. Sometimes it's easier for me to use words, mm. um, which is not the case for a lot of people. So anyway, we're now we're, we are, here we are. Here we are. <laughs> yeah, you're you're the, inside this of this the, now. We did t-shirts, we did, you know, making money as a creative. And now we're just, we're just peeling back the layers of my brain. So I, you know, I love that you have a creative partner and I know that that takes up a lot of space in the home. And I'm curious, like, do you guys take turns? Also like, God, Mitchell is a writer, which is like its own flavor of bananas. <laughs> and like, I know, like, do you take, sure is. Yeah, do you take turns being needy and crazy and sad? Like, how does that work? Like, how have you guys found a rhythm within your marriage? Well, first of all, I want to say hi, Mitchell, um, because he, he is a big fan of your podcast. And this is probably the first time he's ever listened to a podcast that I'm on. So hi, sweetie. He's really handsome. I just want to, <laughs> and he has a great head of hair. <laughs> Honestly, not a single person has ever talked about Mitchell without mentioning that he's beautiful. And it's because like, it is so stunningly accurate. Like it's impossible to ignore, but then he knows it, but doesn't know it. And that's what makes it so good. Well, you guys have known each other for a while too. Like, 
Yeah. We're on like seven and a half years now. So <sighs> we're, we're in it. Um, to answer your question though, we, we don't take turns. So there will be periods where we are overlapping sadness, spiral, stressed about a project. And it's just like, we get it and we can feel it from each other. And we try to honor that. We try to give each other space, but then we might have a mutual blow up because we're just like both too raw. But we've learned, I've learned to speak less and he's learned to speak more. And so we meet in the middle and I think a pretty great place where we're just each other's like cheerleader and biggest, biggest fan. How do you sort of navigate that? Like, do it's, it's one of those things where it's like, where do you put your hands? Like, what are some like linguistic tools that you've used or just like ways of signaling where one person's like, I don't have it. And the other person's like, I do not have it either. And everyone just kind of either goes back to their corners or whatever. Like, are there any tools that are helpful in those situations? Yes. Um, sometimes it'll just be like, go away. Mm. And I think <laughs> this is something I say in my lectures. And so I hate to like bring it up in this context, but I will because I'm also promoting myself to your audience. And this is a sales pitch. Um, I like to tell designers, like figure out what you're saying and fucking say it. And that can work, especially in the context of a relationship. Like just allow each other to say what you need. Like, Hey babe, I need this room now. Please leave this room for one hour. Or like, I am now lying down. Do not enter the bedroom. I'm going to listen to Boards of Canada for three hours and then then you can touch my arm nicely. Like that's that's allowed and we really do that. And it's so important. This is kind of what I love about your work too. It's that like it feels obvious in your head, but there's something powerful in writing it down. And there's something mm -hmm. powerful in reading it. And there's something powerful in saying it. And like, I think, I mean, you talk a lot about like, I'm in like multiple 12 step groups. So there isn't a fucking slogan or an aphorism that I don't fucking love. And you, you are like the ultimate haberdasher of like very good, concise sayings that are truthful. And so like, first of all, just like looking at what you're talking about, like there's so many things that are kind of advanced in that, which is that A, you're saying what you need out loud. You've identified what it is that you yourself need. You've conveyed it to the other person. You are honorable in the fact that it is a shared space. So you're saying that like, you know, I need it for this amount of time. And that to me does speak to seven years of a relationship with a creative person who has outbursts. And my partner and I have similar things where I can be like, I feel abandoned by you because we're both incredibly codependently enmeshed. And he can be like, well, I'm leaving despite that. And everyone's going to be okay. Mm. And like people cannot like things that the other person is doing and that's allowed. And I think that that yeah. is actually like so key. Um, so talking about you again, um, still, so please no like i Sorry. i love i love what you do because it really is like you know mean what you say say what you mean but don't say it mean type thing and it's like the linchpin of what you do is and you you call it this too you call it either backhanded optimism or realistic optimism and what i like about it is it's not prescriptive it's not like smile it's not like be happy it's this tinge of positivity despite knowing what you know about what there is to know. 
And I'm wondering, how did you come into this voice? How did you become this like non-overbearing, but gentle sort of motivational and encouraging place? And is this the voice that you use for yourself? Yes and no. I, I, every answer I feel like is like, yes, but also no, but I'm, I'm a Libra. Um, <laughs> pretty much everything I've ever made is me speaking to myself. You know, it is absolutely me being like a little like manic person writing post-it notes and sticking them everywhere. Like there is a little bit of like the murderer map sort of thing happening where I'm just like hobbling together, like my sanity with post-its and string pins. And then I'm, t- you know, I'm applying those things to a keychain, a book cover, an embroidered patch, a t-shirt. Like it is succinct, realistic optimism, slogan aphorisms, because like, I need to hear them for when I forget. Um, however, what I've, what I've come to realize, so, so making that work has sort of like steered me into this, like optimism and positivity corner of Instagram where people repost my work on these like motivational accounts. But so many of those accounts are tinny and hollow and false. And, and I really feel a difference between what it is that you do and what those like weird, um, whatever, like, you know, serif font type sunset people do. Well, so where I'm going with that. So first of all, I agree because I hate that prescriptive, like smile better. It's like, okay, well I'm depressed. So fuck you. Like I'll, that doesn't help. But my point was that, Sometimes I, I'll, I'm looking at my own and then I keep scrolling and I see stuff that's like, speak to yourself as if you were your friend, you know, like, um, you know, when you look in the mirror, like, how do you speak to yourself? And I've come to realize over the last year that I don't treat myself well at all. Like the voice I use for myself is so different than the voice I use for my friends. And I, I so genuinely believe in my friend's work. And it's like, I'm not even gassing them up. It's like, I see the potential and like, I'm so excited about helping people work through their own creative challenges and like, so open with resources. And so I even like just generous with like, um, kindness and compliments. And then when I'm speaking to myself, I'm just like, you're a dumb fuck. And like, you deserve to die. And I'm actually so cruel to myself. Mm. And I think there's, there's some elements of that where if you're really paying attention to what I make, you can kind of see like someone who's not super healthy, but I, I think I've come to realize like how unhealthy I actually am. And I don't know if it's, I want to be like, well, it's New York because everyone here is depressed, but it's actually not. It's me. It's my inner voice and my inner world. And I'm like, it's not even that I'm not nice to myself. I think I'm like openly antagonistic and cruel to myself. And I'm just now really realizing that. And you're the first person I've said that to but like, of course you are, you know, cause I'm looking at you on the screen and I'm like, I just knew I was going to tell you. So now, you know, I hate myself and I'm really mean. Well, actually, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, and you're right. Like I do, it's not something that feels like remote. I do think there is an undercurrent. And I think that maybe that's the linchpin. Like that's where my identification comes from. Like I talk to myself horribly and I'm an addict and I'm unwell and like I get a lot of help. But like, I think, you know, going back to what I was saying about like sometimes it's hard for me to tell why certain motivational pages are tinny and hollow and yours aren't. And I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head. I think it's more that we have like a front row seat to you sort of like in media res, like you are currently workshopping. 
And I actually really love that. And I really appreciate that. And, you know, one of you're responsible for one of my favorite, favorite aphorisms that I think about all the time. And I quote all the time and sometimes butcher, but like, you know, it's that whole play on do what you love. You'll never work a day in your life, but you obviously fixed it. And you say, do what you love and you'll work super fucking hard all the time with no separation or any boundaries. And also take everything extremely personally. Like, yeah, that's yeah. that. That's it. That's it. And you're not saying, and I beat it. And so now I've won. You know, you're just like, this is, this is me. I am inside here. Oh shit. You are also inside here. Like help us, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, that's, I think that's, that is kind of the dream. Like when people talk about like working for themselves and, and, and that's the dream. It's like, yeah, that can be the dream, but the dream also sucks sometimes, Oh, you know, totally. like there's the dream is not perfect. And, um, and the dream goes on. Yeah. Like the dream is so funny. And you talk about this too, that like, you know, in your book, it's like, don't worry about the destination. And the dream so much of the time is a destination. And I'm like, no, bitch, a dream is a parallel universe that you then have to live inside of and then somehow monetize and scale. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I don't know. What are some of the practical things that you do given you couldn't do this work and have it be this resonant if you didn't have such mindfulness and like self-awareness. So like what, knowing what you do know about yourself, like what are some practical things that you do to safeguard against work as self-harm? I don't have a good answer for this. This is like, this is a question I get often and I, I didn't think it was going to come from you because it usually comes from like the lady boss podcast. Totally. Like what are some great practices for self-care? And it's like, I don't know, take your meds, like up your dosage or like, I don't know, double your thing. Like, I don't, I don't know. So sometimes I, sometimes I'm like, I'm spiraling, but then I don't know what to do. And then other times I'm just like, Oh, I'm not spiraling. Great. And so sometimes it's not so much that I'm good at preventing it. It's just that I am because I'm so self-aware, I can just like, especially appreciate when I'm not in it. Mm. So I haven't figured out how to stay out of it. I've just figured out how to like really love the times that it's not happening. Yeah. And I also hear some, I also hear the fact that you can at least be mindful where you're like, oh, this is not a great time or like, oh, this is a better time. One thing that has been helpful is, I mean, Mitchell has just been so good at like calling me out. And I love that about our relationship because he wasn't always like that. I don't think he's, he's more the kind to like, just be quietly mad at me for 24 to 72 hours. And I have to like figure out what it is. And we've really gotten to a place where I'm like, no, like just fucking tell me. And so sometimes he does. And one thing that he talked to me about a couple of years ago was like, I'll come home and I'll just bring all my like dark frenetic energy with me. And then it's just in the space. And meanwhile, he's been at home, like, you know, with the lavender diffuser and like, he's doing his stretches and he's watering the plants and he's like saging the house. And I just show up and I'm like, here's an email that I fucking got. I'm telling you about it. Um, and so I will just take a breath. Like I literally, before unlocking the door, will take a breath and just take a beat and be like, okay, what am I bringing? Like, it is okay to talk about your day, but remember to like, take a look around and like check the pulse of the space first because you might be walking into a meditative space and, and just like, you know, you might be puncturing a balloon on, on entrance. I think that had I not met Mitchell, 
I, I'm trying to decide if this is like hyperbolic as I'm saying it. There's a part of me that is like 90% sure that had I not met Mitchell when I met him, I would have killed myself by now. Like, you know, I'm not like always that low, but I have the capacity to get there. And I think that there have been moments when I would have gotten that low if not for his impact, if not for the way he's helped me learn new things about myself, the way that he's injected new forms of coping mechanism into my life, like self-care in a very practical way as opposed to an aspirational way. Because he's not living like a Pinterest Instagram self-care. He's just, he's doing the things that help him stay sane. And I'm learning by example. That's amazing. And it's beautiful. And yeah, I mean, I have that, I have a similar relationship with my partner where in the multiverse, I can just see things becoming very, very, very different. But I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, like you and I talk about this with our, about our partners all the time. We're both so like goggle eyed and like, oh my God, we're so pumped. And I think (laughs) that like, yeah, I think that's what it is. And I think that it also being true that had you not met him, these other things could have happened can also just be true and have that information be available. But like all of us just containing multitudes and like having this sort of emotional maturity and flexibility to be like, all of these things are just true and can be simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Um, So I love something that you said in an interview where sort of like the, the sort of um, mental process of the decision to put something out there because you do have so many products. Um, you say, this works, it's good enough, I'm not a perfectionist. You've also said, it doesn't need to be perfect, but it does need to be accurate, and that's truth. So when you're inside that moment, like, what does it feel like? Like, where you're like, you know what, this is good enough, squeeze my eyes shut, I'm just going to put it out there. And was that something that you had to learn? I don't know. I think, I think that that's not usually something that I struggle with. Like I'm not a perfectionist in my work because I've never considered myself anything. Do you know what I mean? Like there was, there was this great freedom in just making things and sharing them because I, I really genuinely felt that people weren't paying attention um, especially like at the beginning, I, at the beginning of this, my early twenties on Tumblr, it's like, I had thousands of followers, but I just assumed that nobody cared about what I was doing. And even now I feel like, like, you know, yes, that's a big number of followers, but like, they're not seeing shit. The algorithm doesn't show it. They don't know who I am. It's a blur of other shit. They're following. Like, there's just, there's just kind of no pressure. And it's different if you're, if you are launching a brand or an entire campaign or it's just, it's different if the stakes are higher, but my stakes have just never been that high. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, I, it's just me in my little bubble world. And it's just like, I can do whatever. And if it's bad, then it's bad. I'll just make another thing tomorrow. That is such a gift. Like that is a real, real <laughs> gift. No, I hear you're so right sized because we can know intellectually that algorithmically speaking, we're like one in every six p- things that you'll see. And we're not like, it's, it's not the time stack on Instagram main feed anymore anyway. So who cares? Like we can intellectually know that, but still feel the pressure of like 718 followers or whatever it is. And, and so that actually little bit of appropriateness 
where you can pan out like 10 times, 10 times, 10 times, like Eames documentary until you're like, oh, like I'm just a person on planet Earth. Like that is like, that's a really great drug. And that is an operating system or like a head up display that I'm really, that I, I think is fucking tremendous. And if, and like, you're really lucky to have that. And I just want to acknowledge that. Well, thank you. I mean, it's just, even when it's your absolute best work, there's still like a hundred thousand people out there who just think it's garbage. You know what I mean? There's people that are like, Oh, that fucking gay dude with his fucking pencil. Like, I just don't care. Or there are people who see your name on the New York times bestseller list. And they're like, fucking YA. No, thank you. It's like, there are people who just hate your entire genre and that has nothing to do with you or the quality of your work or your career trajectory or the other doors that it opens or like the history of you as a person and the 15 years it took to get to that place. Like it's just so irrelevant and separate. And so, you know, there's still times when I'm just like, Oh, why don't cool people like me? And then I'm like, well, some do. So it's fine. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, yeah, sometimes we do want that approval, but most of the time it's very clear to me that the people who don't like what I do just wouldn't like it no matter who made it, what it looked like, how tight it was, how true it was, how it was produced. If it was like a one-of-one editioned work on the wall at a museum or like a $2 sticker on my web store, like they won't like it in any medium in any delivery from any person. So like, who gives the a pressure's shit? fucking off. Yeah. Who cares? And also this kind of, this thing that I think about a lot that Rick Rubin said, which was that like, you know, read your, your criticisms or whatever, like, you know, for amusement if you want, but do not read it for any sort of value of your work outside of what the mood and caprices of that other person just happen to be in. And I think that that's true. Like there's this, this theory in recovery and like, you know, 12 step recovery, whatever, which is that like what anybody thinks of me is none of my fucking business. And the reason why that is, is because what anyone thinks of me is just the mood they're in. And I don't have a remote control for that. I don't ever accurately even know what that fucking mood is in the first place. Like it is not my bad that you hate my book because bitch, you're hungry. And you know, that is definitely when on my healthier times, something that I try to remember. But so you do have a lot of ideas. You do have that sort of post-it thing. Um, can you turn that roving part of your brain off? Or do you constantly have that thing of like, is this a thing? Is this a thing? Is this a thing? Because also like you and Mitchell, like Mitchell's a writer. And so he also has that. I know he has that like for turns of yeah. phrases or different story ideas, like, Can you turn it off? And how do you? I think that it is hard to turn it off because all of us now are really media trained, right? Like, I don't know if if you can relate, but like, I'll be living an experience. Like I'll be in line for something or walking down the street and I'm narrating it to myself in like a Twitter sized bite in like the snappiest way that I would like narrate this on Twitter. And I do it constantly. Like I'm just constantly writing tweets in my head and it's, very sad. Um, but that's social media. Like we have been trained by Mark Zuckerberg to commodify ourselves for his profit. And so it is hard to turn it off. Um, but weed helps. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and, and Mitchell's also really good at being like, like now's not the time, but I will say that living with 
what I consider like a real writer. And that's, again, my own sort of, you know, I'm shitty to myself and my work, but like, you know, Mitchell went to journalism school, like Mitchell, Mitchell is writing his morning pages. Mitchell's taking his notes. Mitchell's writing in a word doc and in a journal and in a this and that. And like to see a writer sit with their thoughts for days and weeks and months and craft and fine tune them into something that's so perfect. It feels like it just fell on the page that way is really special and powerful because I, it's like, I get to see what it looks like when a writer writes and it's a good reminder that like not everyone just like writes a post-it note that says whatever the thing is and then post it on Instagram. And then when it's popular prints the exact same photo on merchandise <laughs> with no further edits. You have imposter syndrome around calling yourself a writer. I do because my international best-selling book, One Page at a Time, is a fill-in journal that's 75% empty. Like I've sold, I've sold more than a half million books worldwide. And the books have a combined total of like 200 words across 385 pages. I've personally, as a very sort of loquacious, like polyslabic, too many words person, like I envy that so much. Like I think <laughs> there is something in like pithiness and brevity. I think poets are just like fucking geniuses. I think negative space mm. is so important and I never know where to put it. So just as someone whose books are like 90,000 words, like I get it, but as your friend who is living on another part of that spectrum, like that does not measure the merit of what it is that you do. Like I, I think that again, like where you shut up and where you remove yourself is why things like unsolicited, unsolicited advice work. And it's why I think that you are different amongst other people that on a cursory glance, maybe does things that the same way that you do algorithmically speaking. Like, I think it's, it's super different. So there. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I, I, I agree. Like there's a part of me that knows that to be true. And I do think that I have figured out, you know, I spoke earlier about like, am I essential and what's my value? The truth is that I think I've spent the last three years identifying the magic of what I do and learning how to harness it a little bit better. Um, embracing it for what it is, sort of unpacking the accidental success to find the thread. And that has been the journey towards my new book, which I'm working on right now. And I'm actually, I'm staring at it because it's spread out across a second table in this room. And it's like, once again, uh, a murderer map of like printed out essays this big, interspersed with handwritten notes and cut paper and it's the longest form writing I've ever done. And it is still like the entire book will be like 16,000 words. Can you tell us any more about it? Yes. Um, it's been a very hard book to write. Um, Penguin has been asking, I mean, they've been asking for a new book for years because my last book was actually published first as blog, blog posts. Mm -hmm. And so it came out in 2017, but I kind of finished it in 2016 and just like sold it twice, which is genius for any, for any designers <laughs> listening like you know it was published as handwritten jpegs at 72 dpi but i scanned it at 1200 so it was print ready like penguin was like oh a handwritten book that's how long will that take and i was like it's it's actually done do you want it and i turned it in like three months early um but this is 
this is new, this is more real, this is more vulnerable. Um, it's not dissimilar to parts of this podcast where I'm, I'm really cutting myself open. Like I think I have enough distance from some of my trauma that I now feel comfortable sharing. There was always a part of me that's like, don't say too much in case you need to get a day job again. And now I'm like, we're living in the future. Like identities are, are commodified. Like I'm probably worth more if I'm open about the things that are riskiest about me. Um, and if I can lead by example, then that might be beautiful. So it's very like, it's me being me, but then it's also like something from nothing, simple materials. And then it is also the fortune cookie magic of reading the right six words at the right time with your heart open, which sometimes I get very like mom kitchen art, but like there is something about those moments when you are especially raw and open. And it's like, I feel that when I travel and I, I traveled a lot over the last two years. And that's where this book took shape. It's like when, when there's a part of you that's just like open to new experience or, or eavesdropping on a conversation and, and internalizing something that wasn't really meant for you, but feels like it was a gift from the universe. Like there is magic there. There's magic in any, anything that we choose to internalize and like actualize on is, I don't know. It's like, how can we, how can we create opportunities for people to find meaning in things? even if it is pithy or even if it is super simple. I think I'm just always leaving like breadcrumb trails, the kind of breadcrumb trail that I would pick up on. I'm leaving it. And I've realized that like, not everyone likes what I do, but there's five to 10% of human beings in the world do think in a similar way that my brain does. And those are the people that this is for. No, I love that. And I think it is true. I think that it's like, they're like little totems and, mm. and, you know, you can pick them up and it can create that sort of alchemy and that magic for you in that moment. And like, I, I do think that is what you do. And I do think it is really important. And I do think it is important in these times quote, but also like forever. And I'm, you know, I think that, you know, I'm learning a lot about life and myself and, and like pain and, and, and grief and all that stuff. But I ultimately believe that the universe is a benevolent conspiracy with so many magical moments. And we are both really lucky. We have very big, true, profound love in our lives. And that's so awesome. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, and I, I'm so glad to get to talk to you. I have one final question. Um, what is the corniest slogan or a surprising piece of advice or just something that's been helping you in the past few months during all of this change? I don't know. I don't know. I've been really down. I've been really like, there is not, I don't think that I have yet to find a slogan that can save me from this sort of political cycle that we're in and the feeling that things are going to get worse not better. Like there's just, I, part of me feels like we've reached this cultural moment where like, we are actually so far gone. You know, people talk about returning to normal and it's like, not only is there not going to be a normal again, we've learned that actually there never was a normal and it was igno willful ignorance and internalized nonsense that allowed us to believe that in the first place. And we've always been turning a blind eye to all sorts of terrible things. Sorry. I, not only did I not answer this question, I'm like really bringing everyone down with me. Um, 
I mean, maybe maybe it comes down to the fucking cover of unsolicited advice, which says it's not all sunshine and rainbows, but a good amount of it actually is. That's the sort of shit that helps me when I'm so far down. It's like, yeah, a lot of things are terrible, but the fact that like a good thing can exist, like the fact that there is actually sunshine every day, as much as I, you know, like there are, there are certain truths and that's not, it's not optimism to say like the sun will come out tomorrow, bet your bottom dollar. It's like the sun actually will come out tomorrow. And like, it's nice to be able to depend on that. And like, scientifically if i get some sunlight it will improve my mood like certain certain just hard truths um do help i think that that's important too and i actually really appreciate your candor because yeah like i agree like shit is so fucked up and i heard something amazing in this film panel where they were like anything pre-march is a period piece and i was like damn word yeah but you know i don't know like mortality is fucking crazy and like this planet is fucking crazy and humanity is fucking crazy and i do think it is such a ballsy maneuver and such a stupid insurrection that i make stories up about teenagers and you make pencils and pins that make people feel better like what a weird human response to like the circumstance. And I don't know. I, th I think it's like hilarious, but I do find such like humor in it. Like I, I find human beings in these sort of small like moments and knowing full well that like in however many hundred years, none of this shit will matter at all. Like I like the ephemeral aspect of it. I like that I'm talking to you via Zoom in like a banana's time before you like, because I'm going to break the news, you're moving, you're leaving New York. Like what a gift. Yes. I got to like commune with you in this way. Like what a fucking gift. And I'm so just pumped. So thank you. I'm so glad you came on the pod. Thanks. You know, it's been, Thanks I wanted for having for so me. Long. This is this was helpful. I feel like I'm, I am doing my, like why I'm leaving New York tour is like <laughs> navel gazy bullshit. And like, this is, you know, one stop on the way. Um, every single day I walk around and I just mourn the city, you know, like a storm hit and like Bushwick nasty sand blew in my eye. And I was like, Oh, my last nasty Bushwick sand. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I think, I think you and I are, are making, making the things and putting up the signs in the world that, that we need to exist. And they might not always work on us, but there's just that hope that they might work on someone else. And we benefit from the other signs that, that people may, I mean, that's, that's just what art is. Art is everyone just trying to save themselves. And, and sometimes it works on them and sometimes it doesn't, but it works on someone else. I love that so much. Um, thank you so much. Um, love to Mitchell. Have a beautiful day. I'm so grateful. And I hope to see you like at some point, sometime. I would love that. Come to Hawaii. I, I want to. Come on out. I know. Just please. <laughs> um, okay. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.